But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. My brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. That descriptor, even though it came hundreds of years later, would have fit Daniel exceptionally well. He was an exceptionally wise man, very shrewd in his dealings, and I'll prove that in just a moment historically. But he was also a man who put his faith and his relationship with God through which he gained that innocence at the front of his life and into play in every single one of his relationships. When I just say, Daniel in the lion's den is an image in your mind, do you see any of the more famous artist renderings of this account from the scriptures and the way it's presented? If in your mind you have a relatively younger man standing in the midst of lions, I'm here to correct that impression, even though that is the prominent way it's depicted. At the stage of Daniel's career that this all happened, he had to be no less than 70 years old. It is far more likely that he was in his early 80s. This was a man who had proven himself in any number of ways. Taken captive and dragged off to a foreign country as an act of war, he served the king, who was the leader of the world of the day, and he served him faithfully. He rose through the ranks of government officials, known for his wisdom, his clarity, his character. He demonstrated all of that in being a wise advisor to the king himself. And we also know from his career that he was something of a troubleshooter or a consultant type that the king would send to governing provinces of captured people that were particularly difficult and treacherous assignments. And he excelled. He excelled, and that led to a reputation throughout the entire known world. To the point when king number one, who had taken him off into captivity, is conquered by king number two, king of the Medes of the Persians, defying almost all of history, Daniel wasn't executed as part of that transition, being so closely invested with the previous king. No, through interview and a process of determination, he was exalted and was made a personal, close, intimate advisor of the new ruler of the world of the day. And yet he was a stranger. He was a foreigner. And those who were natives, those who were 
blood relatives and ethnic cousins of the king that Daniel served hated Daniel. They envied him, his insight and his wisdom, his honesty, his shrewdness. But that they could tolerate because that benefited everyone. What they hated more about Daniel than anything else was that innocent as doves part. Daniel was a man of unquestionable character, very possibly one of the most righteous people that ever walked on the face of the earth, right there with Abraham and with with Moses, with Enoch, who was able to go to heaven without ever having to die because of the level of his personal righteousness and character. It was when Daniel was specifically speaking and sharing with others why he was the way he was, why he had the insights that he did, why he lived the way that he did, why he was so faithful to the God he saw as the only true God of the universe and the world in which he lived, that he generated hate from others because they just didn't understand. Even though Daniel was humble and shrewd, they saw Daniel as judgmental. And they hated him for it to the point where they wanted him dead. But how? How do they go about separating a man of such unquestionable character and value to the most powerful man of the world of the day as his personal advisor? What do you come up with? What mechanism do you use to to separate those two men and cause the death of one of them? They searched and they sought and they studied and they schemed and they realized there was only one path available to them. In that day and time, it was not at all unusual. After a king had died, when his funeral had finished, to have a certain designated amount of time to celebrate and venerate the blessing that that king had been to his nation and his culture by deifying him, by adding him to the pantheon of their gods and literally worshiping him as a god. Well, they knew Daniel would never go for such a thing. And so they went to see the king. And they asked the king a very simple question. Why should we wait until you're dead to celebrate you as a god? You know what we should do? You should declare a 30-day period of time when we celebrate you and worship you as a god while you're still alive. You should ban anyone from worshiping or honoring or celebrating anyone but you, including all the gods of the universe, you alone for a whole month, and it should be punishable by death. And the king said, that sounds pretty good to me. And so he signed it into law. And he'll reference it here later in this account. When he signed it into the law, it was the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once that king's signet ring was attached to that wax, it could never be repealed, no matter who might have wanted to. And how did Daniel react? Just as you would expect him to, because of his character, because of his innocence, 
because of his willingness to daily celebrate the righteousness that was his gift from God through that promised Messiah that he had come to know in his study of the Scriptures. He went right home three times a day, just like always, opened his windows to the east toward Jerusalem, And he sang his psalms, and he said his prayers, and he worshipped his God for all of the world to hear without it even whimpering a bit about what it might cost him. They knew where to find him. They knew when to find him there because his worship and his meditation and his commitment to God was like clockwork. He was so faithful and consistent. And so Daniel wound up in the lion's den simply for being righteous and living the, re- the righteousness of God as reform before a world that hated him for it. Do you think for a moment that the situation that Daniel found himself in ever echoed through the mind of Martin Luther? At a place called Worms, he found himself also in a den of lions, but not lions that would eat him alive, but rather lions of this earth that were human in making and of government and church authority, and they filled that room, placing him on trial for everything he had taught and proclaimed to the world. And his life literally hung in the balance. Just about everybody in that room wanted him dead, just as much as Daniel's enemies wanted him dead. And pretty much for the very same reason. He also would grow to be shrewd as a snake over the course of the rest of his life, but at this moment, he really was as innocent as a dove, not because he had worked it or made it possible, but because he had come to know and understand that God had declared him so in the work of Jesus Christ. He had found that in the New Testament, and he had found it in the promises of the Old, and he had proclaimed it to the world. Freely and fully, the grace of God, unclaimed for centuries, was now at the center of the whole discussion of the church and the inhabited world of the day. Reform. Not through what we could do for God, but what God would do with us through his gift of righteousness. Through taking off the shackles of slavery to the laws of God and the whims of humans who would make rules and authorize things like indulgences that you could pay for that would pay for sins and make you right with God. And pilgrimages and penances that in the doing you would partner with Jesus and pay for your sins and make yourself right with God at the same time empowering and enriching Cardinals and kings and pope who lived far away while you lived in squalor and humility. They knew how powerful the message that Luther was preaching would prove to be, and so they were trying to squelch it and squeeze it and end it as quickly as possible because it was the reformation of God, of the human world, through his word, reshaping understanding of who humans are by nature, sinful, broken, rebellious against God, unable to please him, but who God has made them through Christ, forgiven, holy, righteous, 
acceptable in his sight. And at the most important moment possible for every human being, at the moment of our deaths, innocent as doves before our God, not through what we do or make or think, but because God has given it to us as a gift through Jesus Christ being as human as us, living under every one of those laws and truly living innocence from the moment of conception to the moment of voluntary death. Through his innocent death and his triumphant resurrection, his reclaiming of his life to prove he was holy and innocent, because only one so holy and innocent could claim life again. He rose from death to guarantee all humans, all humans who believe life with God forever. You and I know that and embrace that and celebrate that as confessional Lutheran Christians who acknowledge the blessings of the Reformation. But the world of Luther's day and the world you and I live in every single day of our lives despises that message, hates that message, and resists that message to the point of persecution, even threatening death. Why? Because those who do not understand the free and faithful and the unconditional commitment and grace of God as the Scriptures present it despise God and hate him for being the taskmaster and the judge they think he is, but the scriptures declare him not to be. And so all they see and hear from those speaking the reform of the word in the world around them, living that reform in their faith and their character and their shrewdness and their innocence on a daily basis, is judgment. is exclusion. Even those God's invitation to every one of them is as open and welcoming as any other human being. And so Jesus tells us what we can expect when we listen to his word and we follow his path and we think of him as a mentor as well as the Lord and the Savior who has shown us how to live in love, how to forgive, and how to follow the Father's will and the Spirit's leading. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils. You will be flogged in synagogues. On account of me, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Holy Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Do you think those words echoed in Luther's mind during the days of that trial? It took multiple days. He asked for a recess finally when they had spread all of his writings and all of his publications, all of his sermons in front of him, asking him to retract them all and repent for having said it all. He asked them for a time, a night, to prayerfully think about what they were demanding of him. Do you think during that contemplation he was realizing he was in the position that God had placed him through his following Jesus faithfully, being as shrewd as a snake and an innocent dove, had landed him in a place where 
Based on his answer, he could become a criminal for the rest of his life. To never live another day without the threat of capital punishment carried out by anyone willing, anywhere he went. And yet he had to say, show me on the basis of the scriptures themselves that anything I have said or written or published is contrary to the word of God. And I will repent and correct it. But if you cannot do that, there's nothing left for me to answer you. This is what I stand on. You and I face moments in life when we know before we open our mouths or start typing on the keyboard, even that little one on the phone, if we're sharing the Word of God and its truth and purity in a moment where someone needs to hear it for their correction in particular, it probably isn't going to go well. And depending on the circumstances of our lives, and how boldly and how courageously we make the statement on behalf of God's word and God's will of what God has said is truth, it could cost a job. It could cost a relationship. And depending on where you happen to be standing when you say it in the world in which we live, it could cause violence, it could cost you your life. Jesus said that would happen. But he also told you that in that moment, You'll have words to speak that are true and reforming and will make a difference in the lives and souls and the eternity of others. And you say to yourself, where are those words? What is he talking about? But you already know what those words are. The Holy Spirit has spoken to you over and over and over again through the Word. There are passages and, and parables and Portions of epistles that have shaped who you are and how you think and have lifted you when you were broken and have corrected you when you were wrong and have forgiven you of all of your guilt so that you stand innocent before God and you know that to be true because you've come again to receive more of that cleansing and innocence in the body and blood of Christ. And maybe echoing in your mind when you hear Jesus say this, is that conversation he had with the woman at the well. Who said, once you've drunk of the water of life that I alone can give you, it will bubble up from within you. In other words, every word of mine from Holy Scripture that the Holy Spirit guides you to tuck away in mind and heart that has impacted you and changed you and emboldened you and forgiven you, will be available to you in the moments that you need them. And you will have them to say. But realize it will cost you. And that's why it's so important for Jesus to also say that other quiet truth. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You may attain the status of shrewd as snake. You've already been given the status of innocent as doves in the presence of God who has made you righteous through his Son. Now comes the living of this reality that Jesus tells us. 
that history proves, that the word proclaims, will lead to resistant persecution. True reformation of heart and mind and soul through the message of Jesus Christ. Believers know what they're up against. But believers know that Jesus has won the victory. That Jesus is with them and watching and He's guiding through His Holy Spirit to not only have words to speak to others, but have words to comfort and assure us as well in that moment. That if the lions actually devour and the fiery furnace actually sets us aflame, that is the moment of our deliverance. For us, that is the end when we see Jesus face to face and He embraces us and wipes every tear from our eyes and welcomes us into an eternity where every last thing that He has told us will prove true and will be beyond our imagination and will fulfill us in every way. And that's what He means when He says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And the believer, knowing that both the Word and history demonstrate that true reformation brings resistant persecution, says, bring it on. Amen. Please stand. Now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen.